0: Thank you very much. I enjoy being here. I hope I will not talk too much in a confused way, and I decided to do something very risky. I don't, maybe you will be disappointed. I don't want to underestimate you and just tell my usual political jokes and so on. So after the first part of the lecture, which is more political and so on, I would like to make a, Theoretical point, which provides a kind of a general formula of how to deal with crisis, what attitude to adopt, especially today when I've written, maybe it's known to some of you, I will refer to it, a comment on what does it mean Today, you know, almost every day we learn in the media that we are approaching a new world war and so on and so on, how to react to this. So let me begin by chanting an anecdote that I use often in my books, a reference to my friend. This may sound strange, but I appreciate him, even if he is not exactly a leftist, more a liberal right-winger, but he... Peter Sloterdijk. You know, it's interesting. I never understood. Do you know it? You made an interview with Habermas, no? Where does this come, this totally irrational hatred of Habermasians towards Sloterdijk? If you mention Sloterdijk, they start with neo-Nazi. He wants to uh, prolong Nazi genetic manipulations, whatever. I don't get it. Because even when he talks crazy, you like his basic idea, that how to, you know, this crazy idea that you, we should celebrate rich people today, that we should stop this egalitarian logic of envy. But what is behind it is simply an attempt to, I don't agree with his attempt, to save the welfare state. Uh, Okay. uh, Another thought. Uh Another book that he recently published about global capital. He does something pretty intelligent there. It's all based on this metaphor of globe. Like, how do you say it also in Polish? Kupol, Kupola, you know. He said that capitalism is global, not only in the sense of like global covering everything, but also in the sense that in today's global capitalism, there is a cupola, a globe, and there are some people who are in and there are some people who are out, and we who are hopefully in, we don't even see the outside, clearly. That's the problem. For example, it's fashionable today to say how, oh, but uh, work, physical work, didn't disappear, but people then immediately mention, I don't know, Chinese gulags, Indonesia, factories in Indonesia, but do you remember two years ago something weird happened in the suburb of Firenze, Italy. Some small wooden house burned and we did some 15-20 Chinese workers. <laughs> and They discovered that in the suburb of Firenze, my God, the high point of Western civilization, there are 15,000 Chinese workers, they're illegally who work as slaves. So so it's not uh, back there, Indonesia, India, China. It's here. We just literally don't see them. Okay, another idea of Sloterdijk, maybe you know it, but it's a wonderful idea by him. He told me that if there is a person to whom they will build monuments 100 years from now, he asked himself a simple question. Can we imagine a look from hundreds years in the future at our age to whom they will be building monuments from our era? And she gave a wonderful, ingenious answer. Lee Kuan Yew, you know, the founder of modern Singapore, the Singapore leader who invented what? What we poetically call capitalism with Asian values which has nothing to do with Asia, but everything with an authoritarian political regime. And I don't know if you know this, but I saw this myself in Singapore because they show you these shots, everything. At the beginning of his reforms, Deng Xiaoping visited Singapore and he said publicly, you should be now a model for all of China. And uh, I learned that's the sad thing today. That uh, what does this signal? I think the trend, which began with Li Yu, has a world historical meaning. Namely, till now, in contrast to what some people are saying, I'm not some kind of a bitter mortal enemy of capitalism. I'm the first to admit. Fuck it, capitalism is the most dynamic productive system that humanity has known. Okay, communist regime did sometimes function. For a couple of years, they did bring—I don't know—health, education, fast industrialization. But at a certain point, they simply became inoperative capitalism. War. So, uh, till now, one has to admit it. At least in most of the cases, capitalism seemed inextricably, inextricably, sorry, linked with democracy. Okay, you had periods of dictatorship, like. Uh, recently, South Korea, Chile. But when things start moving again, it's always a demand for democracy. Okay, now we can debate in the old Marxist way, was this real or just formal democracy and so on. But you know, if you are truly Marxists, you should totally reject this Stalinist stupidity of how, oh, this is just a formal democracy. The first lesson, to be learned from Marx, who was at this level a hegelian, is that forum matters. Forum is precisely never just a forum. You know, usually vulgar Marxists are just historicists. Their point is, oh, it appears universal. You must know this mantra. It's the big mantra of the left of the last decades. It appears universal, but in reality, this universal forum privileges certain people, like white males of wealth and so on. But it's not as simple as that. Remember, human rights at the beginning definitely privileged white people of property. But you know the story. First women said, Mary Wollstonecraft and so on, why not us also? Then, for me, the greatest event of that era, more important than French Revolution, the Haïti Revolution, where black people said, why not us? They wanted to establish a modern democratic republic along the French lines in Haiti. And it was something absolutely breathtaking, incredible. And I'm proud to be here. In one of my books, maybe it's even translated, I report on this. I learned it from a history book on Haiti. It's really to make you cry. You know how was it with Haiti? Here all the honor goes to Jacobins, who are usually well dismissed as bad totalitarian guys. When Haiti Revolution won, Jacobins immediately fully recognized them. It was a triumph when the, the black delegation came from Haiti. They were received in Assemblée Nationale applause. Then Napoleon, the moment he took power, it was the opposite. He sent the army there, whole army, to, and giving them terrifying instructions. Napoleon's order was that this is such a dangerous uh, model that black people can liberate themselves. He said it's not enough to make them slaves again, to subdue them. He said all of them, including children, women, should be killed and new slaves. Just to yeah? make you uh, uh, the, so you were
1: aware about the, the, the surprising and who really cracked it down. Uh,
0: Polish... Prices. I know, that's what I'm coming to, sorry. Okay, you okay. ruined my <laughs> dramaturgy, you know. <laughs> that uh, the main... This is why, even when the black took... Uh, you know, uh, there is a legend story that because of all those Maria, the, uh, Napoleon's love affairs or whatever, there was a strong contingent of Polish soldiers there. And it's a legend when the Napoleon's army approached the black army, they heard some singing and they expected, uh, you know, those slaves, some stupid tribal songs or whatever. When they come closer, they were shocked. Black slaves were singing Marseillaise, And all the honor to Polish soldiers, they were the main deserters, but in a good sense. They say, sorry, guys, we are fighting on the wrong side. And they changed sides. And there is a wonderful way how ideology can function in a progressive way. When the black won, they had a problem. They wanted to be a black republic. But they also wanted to accept those honest white people who fought for them. You know how they solved it? I love it. Uh, they, if you took a look at the Article 4 of the Haiti Constitution from 1804, you know what it says? Haiti is a black republic. So all citizens of Haiti, independently of the color of their skin, are black. It's a totally correct solution, I claim. That's what you do. But, okay, uh, let me go on. So what I want to say is that, you see, formal freedom. Okay, it was just formal freedom. But this gap between form and content wasn't just a mystification in the sense of, oh, the universal form must particular interests exploitation. No, it also served as a point of mobilization or all other demands, feminism, against racism, even workers' movement, everything. So, again, it's totally non-Marxist, if we take seriously. I'm very critical of Marx, but some things he did were great. To play this Stalinist game of, you know, oh, this is just formal freedom. Again, form matters. So, uh, again, back to the point of democracy. So, democracy was part of. What I fear is that today, and that's what really makes me afraid, you know, is that today capitalism is globally entering a new stage where, to put it in brutal terms, it no longer needs democracy. The ultimate irony is the following one. And once at a round table I met Fukuyama and we laughed because he agreed with me. I told him, Okay, you were right. Capitalism, although, I mean, Fukuyama is not totally stupid, an honest guy. You know how you can detect this. You know that he no longer is a Fukuyamaist. I mean, he admitted to me that 11th of September, biogenetic problems and all that simply makes his dream of the end of history obsolete. It's over. So... uh, uh uh, I told the Fukuyama, listen, okay, capitalism won. But won't you admit that ex-communists, where they are still in power, as in China, are nonetheless the best managers of this new capitalism? That's the paradox. So now I'm coming back to China, to what, maybe you know him, uh, Wang Hui is a Chinese dissident philosopher, a leftist, but not in the sense of old communist nostalgic. He was arrested during, uh, 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 what was that square, Tiananmen demonstrations and so on. And uh, he told me he met once Deng Xiaoping's daughter. You know, when Deng Xiaoping was dying, nobody could understand him what he was. Uh, the daughter was the his oracle interpreter, no? And he told me that the daughter told him that Just before his death, some dignitaries, nomenclatura visited him and asked him this kissing-the-ass narcissistic question. Okay, what do you think, Comrade Deng Xiaoping, is your greatest achievement? They expected that he would say some stupidity like, oh, opening up China, blah, blah. He said, no. He said, do you know that when I opened up China in late 70s, after Mao's death, that the majority, even in the Central Committee, were inclined to go to the end. Let's drop the Communist Party monopoly, let's open it up to what, ironically, people call bourgeois democracy. And he said, I'm most proud of the fact that I opposed it. Okay, it's sad, but what makes me really depressed is that, in a way, he was right. And this is not for me... Uh, a defense of communist rule, but rather a critique of capitalism. He saw it clearly. What is so difficult to admit? That imagine that at that point, China, Mian, China, China would really become a democratic country in the Western sense. I think liberals who think, "Oh my God, what would have been in the, China would develop even more?" No, it would have been chaos and a catastrophe. And I see in this a general tendency at both levels. On the one hand, uh, (coughs) the most dynamic countries today, dynamic in the sense of wide capitalist development, like China, South Korea, which is not fully authoritarian, but still is, Singapore and so on, have this capitalism with Chinese values, which is slowly spreading even to Africa, look what is going on today, Angola, and so on. On the other hand, even with us in the West, that's what makes me sad. Uh, Of course, we have democracy. But uh, let me ask you a very naive question. If somebody were to ask you, are you free? Yes. Then, in what sense are you free? What do you experience as your freedom? You... Probably your answer would have been small personal freedoms, which I don't despise. They are very important. Like you can read the books that you want, have sexual orientation you want, uh, freely choose your job. Okay, here already things get complicated. There are jobs to choose from, and so on and so on. But what I'm claiming is that, With all these freedoms, which are more and more even guaranteed, at least in the Western countries, we should never forget that these freedoms, which again are very important, operate within a certain general framework of conditions. Within this general framework, you make your choices, free choices. The problem is, are we free? Does our freedom include also an open space, the freedom to change that frame. There, I think our social totality, the way the whole system works, is becoming more and more impenetrable. And I'm not, again, a Marxist paranoiac. I'm not saying there is some secret meeting of capitalists and militaries where they decide how, but it's simply the logic of global capital. This is why it is important to uh, talk about, and it's typical, how there was a little bit of a fuss, but not really, was it here? You know, all those secret agreements that are now in preparation, and only recently we began to talk about them, that TISA, TISA, and some others. Are we aware what is happening there, like that TISA agreement? It's a mega agreement which should set the basic rules of flow of finances, flow of uh, data and so on, along total neoliberal lines, no control. Not only this, some of the consequences of this agreement, as we know now, are pretty terrifying. Let's say that I am a capitalist from one country that I invest money into another country. Then later, a leftist social democratic government takes power in that country raises taxes, so I will get less profits than I expected. According to this agreement, uh, I have the right to sue that country because they changed the rules and so on. So it's a tremendously important uh, set of regulations which will determine the space of what an elected government can do. And as you probably know, not only... We do not discuss about all this. Okay, now we do because Assange, WikiLeaks, and some others published it. But in the first draft of this TISA agreement, there was even that not only it was prepared in secrecy, but it says there that it should remain secret for five years after it will be endorsed, accepted. So again, I'm not saying a dark plot of anti-democratic forces, whatever, I think it's much darker because precisely no one is directly guilty. It's the logic of the system. So you see my point. We are free at a personal level. But often our freedom itself is used the reference to our freedom, the way we are interpolated, addressed as free, is used Used to counteract or to block actual freedom. What do I mean by this? Did you translate some of them here? I'm not saying they are geniuses, but they have some nice insights. The two Italians, Franco Bifo Berardi and Maurizio Lazzarato. Oh, Lazzarato wrote a wonderful book entitled uh, The Rise of the Indebted Man, The Structurally Necessary Role of Debt Today. Debt not only as an Economic category, but also as an ethical, anthropological category. You know, if you are indebted, this determines the scope of your freedom, how you react and so on. And what he shows in such a nice way is how this reference to debt, we are all more or less indebted today, is used to basically to justify the claim that we are basically all capitalists, That just at a different level. The idea is this one. Let's say, aha, you have 200 millions and I have nothing. Okay, you acquire a debt to expand your companies. I don't know, you want more efficient slave labor in Indonesia, whatever you want. But I acquire a debt, I get indebted for 10,000 euros to... And then the idea is this one. We are doing the same things, it's just different decimal numbers, you know. You are a thousand times higher level. The idea is this one. I am an ordinary working guy with almost no money. I get indebted. And then I freely decide what to do. You know, like, I can use the money I get in this way, I don't know, to invest into a larger apartment, to take my family to a holiday, to provide health care. To pay studies of my children, but you see what's the idea? The idea, and they even have a term, self-entrepreneurship. That in a way we are all entrepreneurs today, and I think this is a wonderful way of how a situation which actually limits, constrains your freedom is presented in the terms which appear, which make it appear that your freedom got greater. I think the original sinners here were those uh, new labor philosophers or sociologists like Anthony Giddens, you know. when I don't know how it is with you in Poland, but I know even in my country, Slovenia, England, friends are telling me in Germany how, especially in the spheres of journalism and universities, precarious work is more and more important. And you know how perfectly the system works. My friend, a German Hegelian philosopher, Frank Ruda, told me that there are now at Humboldt universities dozens of professors who work for nothing. Why? Because if you are unemployed, it's very important if you want to have any chance to get a job later that you can say, but I am teaching here, there, that you are not out. University knows this, and again, so they make Contracts with dozens of professors to give lectures for nothing. The same happens with many journalists in Slovenia and so on. But, okay, when this notion of no no more long-term jobs, but just one, two-year contracts at best, when this exploded, Anthony Giddens said, wait a minute, we shouldn't look at this just as a, uh, uh, negative phenomenon. Doesn't it also, and here Giddens refer to all the postmodern stuff of we shouldn't have fixed identities, we should reinvent, Like it gives you every year a new chance to reinvent yourself, it multiplies your freedom, and so on and so on. This is what is so crucial today, that uh, actual unfreedom is often Presented to us as a new form of freedom, to put it like this. Uh, and again, at all, at all different levels. Also, another aspect is at work here. The moment we have this logic of indebted men, the superego dimension is at work all the time. By superego, I mean superego, Iberich, in the strict Freudian sense super ego in the Frontier sense is not just a moral agency, but it's an obscene moral agency which you can immediately recognize by the paradox that the more you obey it, the more you feel guilty, to put it like this, it's this vicious cycle. And I don't know to what extent you are in it here in Poland, but it, precisely I think that that's how political correctness works. I'm totally pro-feminist against racism, but I'm shocked at how so-called political correctness, uh, which presents itself as the most radical anti-racism, profeminism and so on, how, in what negative ways it can work. Not only with regard to the pure ridicule of it. For example, I'm not kidding. I first thought it was a joke. Then I contacted my Australian friends. They confirmed it to me. Was it reported in your media that two, three months ago, Perth, you know the rich new capital city Perth on the west coast of Africa, they have an opera. That opera decided never to perform Carmen again. Carmen, this opera. You know why? They claim because act one takes place in front of a tobacco factory so it could be considered as a uh, smoking propaganda. So, okay, we can laugh at all this, but much more important is another thing. The way... Super-ego works, and also it goes back to that logic of self-entrepreneurship, is that it individualizes your guilt and responsibility. Let's say we have an ecological problem. The way we are addressed is not, let's see how the system works, who are the true polluters and so on. At everyday level, it's always this typically super-ego individualized guilt, like you criticize the system and then they tell you, who are you to talk about it? Did you do your duty? Did you put aside all Coca-Cola cans? Did you put aside to recycle all paper and so on? It's always this this individualizing gesture where, of course, you are then infinitely guilty. And the same logic is, I claim it, sexism, racism, and so on, I mean, in some American campuses, even now, things are crazy. You look a woman into the eye, and it happened to me a couple of times. You are accused of visual rape. You use a dirty word, it's verbal rape, and so on, and so on. I'm not just making fun of it. What I'm saying is that, you know, this is a wonderful instrument to make you guilty at an individual level, responsible, and in this way, instead of raising more radical questions, it's always you personally, did you do it, what did you do it about it, and so on and so on. So, so this, I think, is our predicament today, which is why the new authoritarian society, and if you ask me, it will arrive, but I always specify this, it will not be the old Stalinist or fascist authoritarianism. You will not have an untouchable leader whom we we'll have to celebrate. No, today it works, t- uh, the post-democratic authoritarian system, if you may call it like this, will work with leaders who make fun of themselves, who mock them. You know, like, for me, Berlusconi would be an ideal here, you know. He made fun of himself all the time, publicly, I spoke recently with a journalist from The Economist who told me he interviewed Berlusconi, and Berlusconi told him, "But forget about uh, economy. Let's talk about more n- nicer things. Would you like to see the bunga bunga room? You know, say, where we were doing that and so on." This is this is another aspect of what I'm trying to tell you. How today power, in order to be exerted, no Longer has to be covered up with all the insignia of power. If you like popular media, let me give you a couple of uh, a couple of uh, elements here. Like Jean Genet's play "The Balcony," Balcon, is basically about this process. Then some early how is it called? fontrier uh, films and so on. Uh, they all make in at different levels, this point that today's master is no longer the master, this you know, untouchable totalitarian leader, where any tiny detail that you learn about him is felt by the regime as a mortal threat. Which is why, for example, in the case of Stalinism, it was totally prohibited, any personal details and so on. Note. Today's leader is someone who legitimizes himself by admitting in advance that he is human like us, nobody is perfect, and so on, and so on, and so on. This is what interests me. This new form of power, which, again, no longer needs this big insignia. No, you can have, uh, you know... Where it all began, not began, I remember maybe he wasn't the worst foreign minister, Joska Fischer, when he was German foreign minister some 10, 15 years ago. When they were deciding about war in Iraq, I was shocked. He gave a TV interview where he described all his inner traumas, how he had even to visit a psychiatrist uh, prior to making a decision. I was shocked by that. Who cares about that? Like, you know, Decision interests me, not what. So I'm totally opposed. I think it should be turned around, namely the standard idea that we are so controlled today by uh, agencies that there is no private life. No, I think there is less and less. Here I agree with uh, Richard Sennett, the sociologist of culture. There is less and less public life. Public life is privatized. It's considered as uh, uh, one of that. Okay, so... Now, I come nonetheless to my point after all this this movement, where we are moving off europe eurocentrism. The title of these two three minutes could have been "Why am I still a eurocentrist it 's so fashionable today, even among some European liberal leftists to make you know, to make fun of europe it 's kind of a i claim inverted racism where if you In any way, praise Europe, you are already one step towards all those populist right-wingers who fear for European legacy or whatever. No, I claim that uh, all this narrative of how Western civilization is lost today, it's time it's over, we should really open ourselves to third world, world experiences and so on and so on. I don't believe at all in it. Why not? Not because I'm a racist Eurocentrist, but because I think that it's so typical that precisely today, at the moment when capitalism really won universally, and where effectively what was good in European legacy, egalitarianism, human rights, freedom, feminism, whatever, is often dismissed as Eurocentrism and so on. Now, precisely when global capitalism no longer needs European ideology, it all of a sudden became acceptable to criticize it, to reject it. I think that, on the contrary, now we should stick to European type of universe. Why? Because now I come to my central point. You know... It's totally wrong to think that global capitalism implies some kind of global culture, which is kind of a consumerist American, and so on and so on. No, the sad lesson of last decade or two is that, again, if you have a culture which is not the Western liberal hedonist culture, you can maybe do it even better with capitalist development. Like uh, India is, for me here, a typical example. I have problems with India, not because I'm against India, but because uh, of the crucial struggle going on there. You see, we don't read this in our media. For example, the majority of the poor people and leftists there, just don't mention Gandhi to them. They consider him a traitor, and I think they are right. You know what Gandhi did? Okay, he did many good things, but... The crucial point, caste system. Gandhi was for it, claiming the usual bullshit. So oh, this is part of our historical tradition and so on and so on. And you know where, when you feel this, where you feel this bad, uh, this influence of Gandhi in India. I was there and I asked them, what about, uh, emancipation, equality, democracy? And they basically told me, why are you forcing on us the imperialist Western notions, whatever. Gandhi did a very dirty trick. He didn't want to abolish caste. He just wanted to, as he put it, provide each caste with the dignity it deserved. His message to untouchables, the lowest caste, was not no untouchables, but you are also children of God. You have your own proper role to play within the organic community and so on and so on. So what I'm saying is that you see the sad irony. Yes, back to India. You know, the new prime minister that they have, Mod, it's absolutely crucial that on the one hand, he is the most brutal neoliberal in the sense that he openly said that now China is developing, getting too expensive. There is now an opening for India to become the factory of the world because of uh, 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 cheap labor power, and that's his idea, to totally, oh, at the same time, he's a radical uh, Hindu nationalist. What I want to tell you is that this is how today's global capitalism works. There is nothing subversive, as even some Latino Americans, Latino American leftists, unfortunately think, there is nothing subversive in this idea that global capitalism is an abstract eurocentric monster, and then, we should refer to our local cultures to resist it. No. All references to local culture already play the game of global capitalism. They fit it perfectly. There is no possibility of resistance there. And all serious freedom fighters knew it. That's why I appreciate a guy who was a radical, Malcolm X. Okay, to speak in civilized terms, it's ironic what I say now. You saw my Malcolm X read Denzel Washington in Spike Lee film, you know. But it's true. You know what was the greatness of Malcolm X? Of course, X stood for loss of roots, you know. Like, we blacks, we were torn out of our concrete network of our native relations in Africa. X means we don't have family names where Family name stands for the whole set of organic relations, your specific culture, and so on. But what was the greatness of Malcolm X? That he didn't play that game of, oh, so let's search for our roots. I don't know if you are old enough to remember some 20, 30 years ago. There was a big bestseller, Alex Haley, I think, roots, and then a mega successful series, where the point was a black American citizen, black of today, Retraces his origins at, at, the end. She visits some tribe in Ghana and, oh, that's my grand, grand, grandmother. And, you know, like she found roots. Nothing subversive. Malcolm X has a, had a much deeper insight. Since he said what the dish X, X, which means I don't have a firm identity. I'm free. Gives blacks a unique tends to be more universal than whites, to freely create their own space of freedom, and so on. And this is why I remain here, in this sense only, a Marxist. I'm referring here to Marx's famous text on results of British colonial rule in India, where he says, yes, it's horrible what the British did. There were hungers, millions, death, exploitation. But at the same time, they created the possibility for a new freedom. So I claim again that we absolutely have to, we absolutely have to stick to European legacy more than ever today. All these references to particular life, were, you know, like my friend, he's not an idiot and he's honest. Another conservative who is half my friend, Alain Finkelkraut in France, he's obsessed by this. There is bad global capitalism and then, oh my God, what will happen with the French way of life and so on and so on. Well, I told him you don't have to worry. I mean, that's how capitalism works. You will have your French way of life. But it will just become indifferent because the universality today is the universality of capital. No, now the first part. Second part and then the third part. Second part still more political. Uh, uh, Sorry? What what does this universality mean today for our situation? I think the moment is dangerous. I've written about it. I'll just recapitulate it. It's dangerous because uh, we have United States, whom I... Respect as a country, and I always warned my leftist friends that don't underestimate Obama. Namely, it's one of the most boring pseudo-leftist rituals today to claim, oh, how disappointed I am with Obama. Well, fuck you, what did they expect? Obama will introduce socialism in the United States. She did what was possible to do. What I'm saying is that, unfortunately, Obama believes in still in the role of United States as a world policeman. You know, a couple of, uh, now, two, three months ago, an interview where he said something like, uh, whenever there is trouble somewhere in the world, they don't call Beijing, they don't call Moscow, they call us. That's how America works, universal policemen. The tragedy is that America, precisely because we are already entering a multicentric world, America... The result of this, that you believe you are a world policeman where effectively it's already a multi-centred world, is that America is winning the wars and losing the peace. That is to say, it intervenes, but then the result is that it does the dirty work for their enemies, precisely because they no longer control the entire situation. Just think about Iraq. What is the actual result of their intervention in Iraq? A, the state is falling apart. You have a Shia part, who is more or less politically under control of Iran, and on the other hand, you have guys who are even much worse, ISIS, not the radical Islamists. And repeatedly they get caught into this uh, trap, the United States. I think that now I will propose a parallel. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think there are good reasons to sustain it, and you may have already read about it. It's not a new parallel. Namely, uh, That we are now in a situation which is dangerous precisely because it resembles the one 120, 30 years ago, decades between the Great War, World War One. We have one global power which is in decline. Not economically, don't underestimate the United States, but in decline in the sense that it's no longer the sole undisputed global power. 120 years ago, it was the empire, now it's the United States. Then we have new rising powers which want their own slice. Again, 120 years ago, the main one was, uh, of course, uh, uh, Germany, but also others. Today, it's, of course, China and Russia. And next problem, uh, so, and, of course, they play their wars by proxies. In 120 years ago, as you know, it was Balkan, Sarajevo, where where it exploded. Today it's the Middle East. And uh, I think that uh, what worries me is, did you notice this weird schizophrenia? On the one hand, we are all the time bombarded by news about how the new world war is coming, or at least there is a threat. My God, just read newspapers. I and now counting it, it's literally practically every day. Like, hey, oh, Russians has now a stealth fighter which is better than ours, Americans, then America invents something, then Putin said this like two months ago. I think he said, Oh, in one afternoon I can walk into Poland and both Baltic states or whatever. Uh, so how systematically, and I'm not saying it's not really, the, the, the danger is not real, incidentally, I'm here, uh, no, I'm not in any way pro, which is why I have this, I'm not in any way pro-Putin. I'm just saying that what worries me is the entire situation where, again, all the time we have this rhetoric of new world war, What where are the dangers? Precisely because now you will tell me, but this is rhetoric, don't take it too seriously. That's the problem for me. Because it was exactly the same if you go back 120 years ago. Everyone was talking about the war, but nobody believed that it can really happen. You know where you have traces of that? Like in the good old Cold War, we had what we called uh, MAP logic, mutually assured destruction. The idea is that each site knew that if we bomb them, they will absolutely have the ability to bomb us back. So it's the end. Today, more and more systematically, the idea is we somehow abstract, we think that limited nuclear strikes can be, you know, this is the new way of strategic thinking. So again, what makes me afraid is Precisely, uh, sorry, yes, today's strategy is called, I like the name, it's no longer MED, but NUTS, N-U-T-S, which means idiots. It's Nuclear Utilization Target Selection. The idea is we can risk a nuclear conflict, it will not be the end, and so on, and so on. Uh, Again, you see what I'm aiming at. Uh, We are like before World War I, in an era where the old bipolar world with, at least it looked so after the, the disintegration of the Soviet Union, America as the sole superpower, is in decline. And here, as a friend of America, this is not a leftist statement. I think that all leftists and anti-Americanists should propose to build a big monument to George Bush, the younger president. He, with his extremely stupid politics, as we see it today, he, the main result of Bush's eight years is that America lost his world dominance, which it still possessed under in the Clinton years, and so on. I mean, he did if there is a guy who did most damage to ruin America's position, it's Bush. it's clear. Sorry, but let me go on. So you see what I'm arguing that. This situation it was again exactly the same before World War 1. Everybody talked about war nobody believes that it can really happen. And that's why it can happen I claim. We will it can. I'm not saying it will happen. I am saying something very precise with which I'm approaching the last third part that uh, uh we have to change the entire frame of thinking. It's not enough to claim we have to be very careful, not take, not risk too much. In this way we can inevitably trigger war. No. We have to, and here I'm referring to my good friend, American, and uh, French uh, uh, thinker, philosopher of catastrophes. My God, you should translate him. He's a genius, I think. He works in Paris, but now he's retired there. He's mostly uh, in Stanford. Uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, D-U-P-U-Y, like Ypsilon. She has this wonderful theory that the way to deal with a catastrophe is first to recognize it as a fate in the sense of it's not just we are at a crossroad. No, if the world goes on the way it goes on today, we are approaching if not a world war some kind of a conflict and i'm well aware i'm writing about this in my new book i'm well aware that uh, i'm well aware that superficially the situation is good i know from first hand a year and a half ago i was in south korea and i was telling them the usual bullshit crisis of capitalism and they started to laugh at me and I asked them, why, why are you laughing? And they gave me a counter-argument which was quite reasonable. They said, about what crisis are you talking? We in Far East Asia, we developed more than ever. Latin America, at least at that point, was progressing as it never did. Sub-Saharan Africa, okay, it's not rich on our, with our measures, but it's developing. Even they claimed and they mentioned to you, sub-European countries... Poland and so on. They, United States, more or less, it's a, they told me, you claim to be anti Eurocentrist, leftist, but the only place really in crisis is parts of southern and uh, Europe, maybe France and so on. They told me, and you proclaim this uh, worldwide crisis. No, you are in crisis, they told me. And they even proved with statistics. That Never in the history of humanity was, at the level of percentage of population, so many people lived so well, there were so little wars, and so on and so on. So all of this I admit it, but of course one can complicate It's not as simple as that. But what I'm trying to say is that in spite of these appearances of, okay, things are going well and so on, I think if you ask me that there are many reasons. One is this. A new multi-centric system where we don't yet know what are the rules of the game. The superpowers are testing each other. Like Putin is testing United States. Crime Crimea, you swallowed that? Okay. Let's. Uh, like the problem is the paranoia, one. Like Putin hears calls for help. He heard it first for Crimea. Now who knows? Maybe he will hear some future calls from Baltic republics maybe even from Poland and so on. <laughs> so, uh, But again, Americans are doing the same. And don't understand me. I don't in any way defend Putin. What worries me is this entire picture where? Again, the imminent logic of the situation is accepted. Our fate is world war. We are approaching a conflict. And what I'm saying is that the way to fight it is not some cheap optimism. No, it's not so bad if we proceed cautiously. We no, we have to admit that world war is our fate and then act more radically to prevent it. What do I mean by this? Where are we now temporarily? Looks bad. But, yeah, but uh, you know what I would like to do? You know, usually when I talk too long, and I often do, the the joke I use is, you know, this notion by deconstruction is the that we have this metaphysical linear notion of time. And I claim, yes, I used my hour if we apply this notion metaphysical of time. But if we apply a higher non-metaphysical notion of time, no. Okay. So uh, what I wanted to develop here is a couple of things based on the work of Badiou. The first idea by him that I find so intelligent is the idea of so-called counterfactuals. You imagine the way the situation could have been, even if it's not, and in this way you can clearly see the truth of the way the situation is. What do you mean by this? Did you see the movie of one of your? directors although I have a strange mixed opinion of him Roman Polanski. I do like his Chinatown good noir and I do like I must say strangely that film uh, uh, you saw him with Pierce Brosnan as Tony Blair or whatever uh, a, uh, a ghost or ghostwriter. okay you know you know the thesis of the film that not Blair but his wife, in the film, uh, was from the very beginning CIA agent planned on him. And again, the rise to power of Tony Blair was from the very beginning uh, regulated by CIA and so on. Uh, Somebody wrote a wonderful comment on the film. He said that uh, we know that probably that this is not true. But if it were true, everything would become all of a sudden clear. You know, like the be and that's the result. There sometimes, as good theologists knew it, like my beloved Chesterton, like that. You know, sometimes, in order to see the situation in truth, you need a particular lie, which you know it's a lie. But if you mention But if you use this lie cautiously, you can see the entire situation in its truth. I mean, and I'm ready to apply this even on Marx. Like, as I repeated, repeatedly analyzed in my books, Marx's vision of communism doesn't work. Why? Because it's still a copy. What Marx wants to imagine as communism is capitalism without capitalism. That is to say... Marx saw it clearly that this incredible dynamics of capitalism. Marx just thought that at a certain level of development of forces of production, you can take away the capitalist form and the dynamic will remain even more, even stronger dynamic. Marx didn't see that what he thought is today an obstacle to capitalist development is its only frame. What is wrong here? Oh, I don't have time here to go into psychoanalysis, but I think it's a wonderful case of what Jacques Lacan called objectita, the object, small a, what Lacan calls the object of desire. How do you fall in love usually? I mean, this is even an empirical fact, some sexologists told me. It's never a perfectly beautiful woman. You can desire, if you are a man, I'm not going now into, okay, the other way around also, you can desire a beautiful woman, but to fall in love, you need to notice some imperfection. So that then you tell yourself, even if she's not perfect, that's why I love her. It's always something like this. Okay, so let me go to my dirty joke detail. Uh, a friend from Portugal, who is a psychoanalyst, told me that she had, she had a patient a nice lady, still sexually attractive in her early 40s, and this lady told him, her psychoanalyst, that to boast herself, that when the last lover saw her naked, her last lover, he told her, my God, just with two, three kilos less, your body would have been perfect. But my friend, who is a good Lacanian analyst, immediately got the point. He said that, I told this lady, just don't lose two, three kilos. Because, you know, that's the refined dialectic here. Two, three kilos too much, retroactively create the the, the specter of a perfect body without these two, three kilos. But if you actually take away these two, three kilos, the effect will be just vulgarity. You see, something that appears as an obstacle, like here, to perfect beauty, you would be perfect with two three kilos left, is an effect of this very obstacle. You take away the two three kilos, you get an ordinary vulgar girl. And even some big models knew this. Like I read years ago when I was young when there were two models, big mega models, Claudia Schiffer and Joan Crawford. And I read a stupid uh, opinion, Paul, whom would you prefer to marry in Europe? Majority said Cynthia Crawford. Why? Because she had that birthmark, you know. Come back, Zizek. Let's come back to Marx. But I am. This is Marx. You know, I have a uh, uh, holistic approach to Marx. This is also part of it. No, no sorry. But what I'm saying is that Marx with the spot. Sorry? Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm trying to say just is that is this again, this logic, this is was, I think, a similar, the mistake of Marx. He thought that if you, if the woman raises, sorry, loses two, three kilos, that is to say, if you take from capitalist system, the capitalist form, that you will have the pure self-reproducing. No. It doesn't work in that way. But my point was a more important one here. This uh, uh, counterfactual logic, which I think is extremely important. Ultimately, it means that things are not simply what they are. Part of the identity of the thing is what they might have been but are not. Like, back to this lady, with two, three kilos less, her body might have been perfect. But this is only true counterfactually. If she effectively, if this becomes a fact, she is not beautiful. She would not be beautiful. Now, what I want to say is that an atheist, I don't have time to develop this, has to approach even religion in this way, in a counterfactual way. That is to say I'm an atheist, but I have a great appreciation of Christianity. But nonetheless, I like to complicate things here. Like, uh, you can download it for free at any moment. I advise you to download, you get it for free. You don't even have to go to Pirate Bay, which is now reemerged as old Pirate Bay. It works again, if you want to know. Uh, a strange film from early 90s, 91, Rapture. Michael And with Mimi Rogers, it's a weird story of a woman who is promiscuous. Then she becomes a fundamentalist, marries Christian, has a daughter, and then she, waiting to be when after her husband is killed, she waits for rapture. She thinks that she hears divine voice that uh, God will take her and her daughter up. And then it's a very obscene movie, but I'm very seriously. Then they wait in the desert for God to take them up. When nothing happens, the daughter tells her six years old daughter, mommy, why don't you kill me in this way? And then you kill yourself and will immediately join our father who died. Okay. She kills her daughter, but cannot kill herself, becoming aware that uh, people who commit suicide don't go to heaven. And then she's totally broken. She uh, goes to police, confesses everything, is put in prison. Up to this point, you can say it's an ordinary psychological drama about deadlocks of radical belief. At that point, the last 20 minutes, the film gets crazy. What happens then in prison is that real rapture and apocalypse happens. You see four riders of the apocalypse you know, uh, 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 houses are disintegrating and so on. This is already a wonderful message. The message, it is as if God's message is, "Haha!" ha, when I talked about four riders of the apocalypse, you thought I'm talking in metaphors. No, no, I meant it quite literally. There will be four people riding there. So then ha, a crazy thing happened. She is enraptured and is in some place which is, something like purgatorium, how do you call it, just close to heaven, not there. And her daughter approaches her from heaven and asks her, Mommy, say I love Jesus and you can join me and your husband, my father, we will all be happy. And there comes the last shock of the film, that's the very end. She says, no, what God did, all the horrors by allowing me to kill you by all the injustices, I cannot say that I love Jesus. And then daughter tells her, her daughter, but mommy, you know what this means? Do you know how long will you stay here out of heaven? And she, the heroine says, I know, forever. The end of the film. I found this in the best tradition of this radical Christian experiment. You find it in Malbranche, in others. Uh, uh, This idea that to go to the end in the divine experience, you must counterfactually uh, imagine God as brutal. Because this is, I think, here I am, unfortunately, not as Catholic as you are here, but more Protestant. I think, I think that uh, Protestantism, the, the secret of Protestant predestination, is precisely that God is an ignorant idiot. He just distributed roles, he didn't even care what he, we really did. So uh, you will say, but what use is this for an atheist? My point is that it's very important to say, you know, I want to repeat here the crucial joke from Ernst Lubitsch Ninochka. Ernst Lubitsch is the guy who maybe did the best film which takes place in Poland, to be or not to be, you know. You don't know this. It's a Hitler comedy. It takes place in Warsaw. It's extra. But let's drop that. Uh, What happens in this one, in uh, Ninochka, I'm just referring, I use it all the time in my books, the most famous line of a dialogue, you know where uh, uh, a guy tells to Greta Garbo a joke, like a guy about somebody who comes to a cafeteria and says, can I have a coffee with cream, please? And the waiter says, Sorry, we don't have cream. We only have milk, so I can only give you coffee without milk. I cannot give you coffee without cream. If you are old enough, but you are not, you must immediately recognize the old. I think I know it was also in Poland. Used this joke in my country. You know, a guy comes to a store and says, "Do you have? uh, I don't know. Let's say toilet paper." And tells him, "No, we don't. You are in the wrong store. We are the store." which doesn't have oil. The other story is in the store, which doesn't have toilet paper or whatever. You know, but this counterfactual idea that what you are not counts as your... And now, uh, what... Uh, I, in this sense, counterfactually, we can change the past. For example, uh, let me now... And with this, I will finish immediately... Just draw the distinction that I want to present with. Uh, two types of conditional propositions. The indicative one would have been, if Shakespeare did not write Hamlet, someone else did it. This is obviously true. Hamlet is written, so if Shakespeare, someone else had to do it. But if you say, if Shakespeare had not written Hamlet, someone else would have done it, This is a much stronger thesis. This comes close to vulgar Marxist determinism. You know, when Plekhanov, the most unfortunate Marxist philosopher Russian, said something like, there was a historical tendency at the time of French Revolution for a passage from democracy, parliament to empire. But it was contingent that Napoleon was the guy who did it. So if not Napoleon, another person would have assumed that role. And this is a very interesting point. Like it immediately becomes actual in uh, uh, how to account for Stalinism. You know, is Stalinism an effect of this type of necessity so that we can say there was an inner necessity in the early development of the Soviet mo- movement? for a move, for a shift towards Stalinism. Something like if not Stalin, then another person, maybe even Trotsky, would have played the same role. It might, might have been a little bit different, but basically the same. So this is the vulgar Marxist idea. We have a universal necessity, passage to Stalinism, passage to empire, and then you... Uh, you uh, but, but it's contingent which... Concrete guy will do it. I think this is the wrong logic. The logic I want to advocate following Dupuy is the opposite logic of something happens contingently, but retroactively it establishes its own necessity. You know, something happened, happens, it might have not happened, but once it happens, it retroactively appears as necessary. For example, ridiculously well-known example, Julius Caesar, Rubicon. Well, I'm not a determinist. He may have turned around and said, no, I don't want to violate the laws of the Republic. Let's go back to Gallia, France, and be a small king there. But once he did it, it was his destiny. And at this level, you see what I'm trying to say? We can change the past. Nothing changes factually, but things change counterfactually. Let me give you a horrible example of this. Uh, This is my total moral decadence. I like those national geographic series about plane crashes, big. And you know how they go step by step what went wrong. There was some, 10 years ago almost, uh, Swiss, Air. At that point, it was still Swissair 111 flight from New York. It took off to Geneva. And then very soon there was some smoke, blah, blah. And there was a whole series of decisions which were wrong. You know, they ignored it for too long and they made the, 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 the plane crashed somewhere close to Newfoundland. All were deaf. But what shook me so much is that at the end of this documentary, where after describing all the wrong moves, they asked a simple question. Okay, what would have happened if they were to avoid all these wrong moves? And the result is very sad. Nothing. The plane was doomed from the very beginning. You see now, nothing changes. It changes counterfactually. Where you thought you had a choice, you don't have a choice. It was predestined. So, okay. Now I will really conclude. The point of all this, well, buy my next book where I develop this in detail. Or uh, even better, buy the book it you, Dupuy D U P U Y. His late last book is now. It happened. Uh, it uh, it emerged. It came out recently. His, uh, uh his last book is uh, called simply Economy and the Future. And he's a wonderfully educated man. His big example in this changing the past are, for example, films. His favorite film, he is fanatic for it. Before, even not only in the last years when it was voted the greatest film of all time, is Hitchcock's Vertigo. You know the story, no? His reading is this one. After, when the false Madeleine, it appears, kills herself, Scotty, the hero, loses her you lose your love object, But when, at the end, he discovers that Madeleine was fake from the beginning, he not simply loses her, but at this virtual, counterfactual level, the past is changed. He doesn't lose her, but he, he retroactively discovers that there never ever was a Madeleine. And you see my point. Something like this has to be done. That's a true political act. You don't just make the right choice. You do something which, in a way, changes your destiny. And that's what we have to do. If you want to avoid catastrophe. Again, it's not enough to say, oh, there are dangers. I hope Putin will not do something. Speed. Let's not provoke too much. No, something more radical will have to be done. Otherwise, I'm a pessimist. I really think that we live in dangerous times. You, precisely, what makes them dangerous is that we don't take the situation seriously. Thanks very much. Ah, I finished. Okay, thank okay, okay, you. Okay. You know, I feel like Stalin now. You know, if you go to YouTube, put it on YouTube. Stalin angry. It's a wonderful three minutes and a half clip where you see Stalin documentary at the end of a speech and people applaud, and you can see how okay, nice, nice, and then he gets tired of it and he gets really angry, but cannot stop them because they are afraid. To stop, you know, like I felt a little bit like Stalin, but okay.
1: <laughs> all right. Um, let me first allow for a um, for a maybe fruitful small revenge. Have you seen the film Ida by Pablikovsky?
0: Not yet. I was even one, one. Invo- no, no. It will amuse you what I will have to <laughs> say. I will, but it was already given to me. I was even involved in sabotaging it. No, 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 not seriously. It all happened. It had. It was part of the three films competing for the European film of the year. And another of the three was a Slovene film called Class Enemy about a suicide that happens in a high school. And I like the Slovene film and without knowing who is the competitor, I made a short statement supporting that film. So I'm even involved in to put it in all socialist terms, anti-social activity here with regard to... But it must be a wonder, because, no, I will tell you a secret. A young guy, the Slovene director of that film, told me, you know, privately, I must admit the Polish one is the best one. So, I sorry, so, so yes. You see, rec-
1: retroactively, you did good job, you know. I did, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I, actually I just have uh, a kind of, uh, I'm obliged to ask for a three pretty predictable and obvious uh, comments. Um, you meant, well, b- because we have this, Agnieszka Visniewska gave us, we have it, and of course, as you know it, we are very engaged in what is going on. But like, actually, I, you, you already comment on what uh, uh, what you think about Putin. Putin is pretty predictable example, very typical uh, authority in Russia. Uh, but actually, I would like to ask about the position of the, I'm not not only radical left, but generally the left, especially in Germany, yeah. uh, but also some American intellectuals. Unfortunately, uh, also many others who are claiming, first of all, um, um, that you know, like uh, that Ukraine is a kind of a source of nationalism, in fascism,
0: and all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And justifying this way, Putin. Uh, what does it mean? What do you think about it? How would you comment on it?
0: No, no, here, don't be afraid. I even published a text for which... I'm not afraid. I the, of, ...of which I was... Some leftists even threatened to beat me up. You know, a text, Lenin in Ukraine. I think it was London Review of Books, where I pointed out something that people, even Ukrainians tend to forget. Listen, the Bolsheviks in the 20s, that was the golden era. They had a political which was very progressive of so-called, I mean, not democratically, but nationally, of so-called indigenization. The idea is give smaller nations to anyone but Russians, full cultural autonomy. You know that Ukrainian become a full literally language with, uh, uh, with vocabularies and so on. In the 20s, that was the golden era. In the Tsarist regime, it was not acknowledged as a language of its own. So, starting. Here, uh, and, uh, so nice, this Lenin's tendency was here, so radical. In 22, Stalin attacked Lenin as bourgeois liberal nationalist. You know, it was a big conflict even with Rosa Luxemburg, who opposed here Lenin, because Lenin's position was that uh, we should give full right to Shishit and to build their own state. Nationalist independently of who is in power then. While Rosa Luxemburg, was, he said, why don't we say we give them autonomy if our guys are there? <laughs> you know, she won't. So what I'm saying, that was one aspect. The other aspect, which is obvious, is that first, as you said, yes, you see, these are people who really are not aware that we are approaching a multicentric world today. And they still have this my God, I've written a lot against the United States. But nonetheless, you know, we have to admit it. Like, whenever there is some crisis in the world, it's not automatically that United States, Western Europe and Israel, that's the usual triad, are, almost, are always automatically guilty. Let me tell you a wonderful anecdote which happened in Zagreb, that subversive festival, two years ago, when I got in a ferocious conflict with Samir Amin, an old He's still alive because he forgot to die. He belongs to that era, 1950s, <laughs> the anti-colonialism. And he said, still, the evil is, again, Western Europe, Zionism, United States. And he said, A developing countries should open more towards China, Russia, these are not such bad nations, and then I didn't have to say anything because there were some Greek friends of ours from Syriza there, and they exploded. They start to laugh. And they tell us, for example, you know that already a couple of years ago some Chinese company bought the port of Piraeus and did things that no Western company can allow to do? Immediately fired half, the, half of the people... Uh, Uh, find some legal loophole to prevent all trained unions, the most brutal exploitation. So uh, I hate this attitude of, and this is part of the symptom that you were describing, this attitude of the lab that not only are we always guilty, but uh, like this perverse superego pleasure of, you know, whenever something horrible happens in third world, like Rwanda, Tutsi, Hutu, oh, it must be a consequence of neocolonialism. Like, you know, this is so patronizing. You don't even allow poor Africans to be e- really evil. If they are evil, fuck you, you're like little children, you are too stupid. It must be us Europeans who are evil and so on. You know, this game of permanent self-guilt, it's really like in the old days it was white man's burden Today it's uh, like the idea we white men have the burden to lead other nations to enlightenment. No. Now they have in Denmark a more a nicer. They Did you know it's a wonderful dirty joke? In Denmark, the left ironically uses the term white woman's burden. You know what it means? There are many immigrant, uh, uh, immigrant workers there who are alone, sexually starved, so it's the duty of white women to allow them to have sex with them and so on. But I like this irony. They call it white woman's burden. But now white man's burden is more like, okay, if we are not the best, we at least should be the only one who are really bad, the worst. We still can, and this is why I can understand them. In Missoula, Montana, I met some Indians. They are called now in a politically correct way, Native Americans. Incidentally, they hate this term. you know my old joke, you no, know, it's wonderful. You know what they told me? They told me we much prefer the term Indian to Native American because Native American is potentially much more racist. Like, Native means we are nature and you are culture or what you, right? And they told me, we want to be called Indians because at least our name is a monument to white men's stupidity. You know who <laughs> thought they are in India. But what they told, one of them, a researcher, told me, I can prove it to you that we Indians killed more buffaloes, ruined more nature, burned more uh, forest than, than, than you white people will at any point be able to do it. This was not obscenity. They very well. How this patronizing attitude? You no, know, we white men are imperialists. We exploit nature, while the native people, you know, with before they a mountain, they ask the mountain for a permission. They are holistic. They they shade this. They know that this is a, a, a patronizing, paternalist racism. So I didn't lose my thread. Going back to this, I totally agree with you, and I can give you some further examples, like. Yesterday, I was talking to his kind of a friend of mine, Assange, Julian Assange, in nice apartment, Ecuadorian embassy. The only thing I like there is that it's close to a small street at the backside of Herod's uh, Herod's, uh, department store, you know. Okay. So what he told me is that Oliver Stone was there. And, you know, Oliver Stone was also seduced by Putin. He visited Putin now a uh, month ago when he said that's the nice, strong leader, that's what Russia needs, and he announced that he will do a documentary on Putin, uh, pro-Putin. Well, I think this is horrible, and not just from some European democratic standpoint. I think Russia had much greater potentials. It's in the terms of Russian economic development itself that Putin is not good enough. So I totally, but again, this is part of the phenomenon that I'm criticizing, as you said. This automatic, uh, the left, you know what would be nice? Maybe we could do it. To go through all these myths of the left, I'm the victim of another myth in ex-Yugoslavia. It's the same logic. Because Milosevic was so attacked by the West, Milosevic couldn't be so bad. The true fascists are we Slovenes and Croats and so on. And it's up. I agree with you. And they are so crazy, like the same British left, which in the case of Slovenia and Croatia, it was clear. We Slovenes are guilty. We ruined Yugoslavia. Ah, in the case of Scotland, they were all for Scottish independence, you know, when they had that vote. Like, some nations can do independence, others shouldn't. And Sorry, go uh, on. You know, but
1: so let, let's make it a bit harder. So what would because the the radical right actually mm. is fascinated by Putin, and now they created a kind of a like new comintern or something. supporting Is it so yes, didn't know. It. So let's 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 put them aside. So actually, what is what what who really supports Ukraine is this liberal center that we you used to criticize. Can you say something good
0: about the liberal center? No. <laughs> Still not. No, no, no. But what I can say is, for you know, probably it's true. Nobody's idea that they have all those neo-fascists, blah blah. But listen, Putin had even more of them, and they are not another party. They are simply par- part of his movement. I mean, I know a little bit through my friends uh, from de Delad group. Uh, I mean, all these horrors, this. Uh, how can Putin say this, man? Wasn't it now disclosed that Putin is now even directly supporting, giving money to Marine Le Pen? Orban is now flirting with, with Putin and so on. So we, we have new friends for you in Russia.
1: Stodziewicz is supporting, unfortunately. Kremlin really, what? <laughs> Stodziewicz, and really thinking that the Ukraine has a problem with nationalism. Whenever we write I didn't know this, seriously. Guys are sending to us their answers and just... I didn't know that. You, um, see, you see, but uh, But... Uh,
0: Um, Okay. Um, But wait a minute. No, 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 no. Sorry, I will not talk for half an hour. But uh, let me make one point nonetheless clearly. I'm not saying that Russia was without arguments. I mean, if you look at it historically, it is problematic. How do you pronounce it here? Krim, Crimea, whose it is. I agree with, you know, there was only one guy in Duma, who voted against the annexation? And he said something nice. He said, We have some arguments for Crimea, but the way we did it is totally to be rejected. No? That would be my position. But he claimed also, to, to make it even a bit yeah. more hard,
1: yeah. uh, harder, that yeah. uh, what Europe sees in Ukraine is exactly this kind of like a paradoxical. I don't know, feedback or realization of a nightmare and fascination in the same time. So Ukraine represents something which Europe uh, already uh, doesn't have, this kind of Euro enthusiasm. And in the same time, something which is a kind of a nightmare. So this kind of like rupture, you know, collapse or something that might happen
0: also. Anna, too. But I wrote another text now where I said something different. But again, it was typically censored by Guardian. Uh, Then I published it, namely that why, I think, why you you remember when I talked about how freedoms are for us, more and more these small personal freedoms? I think that the reason we were so fascinated by Ukraine it wasn't just this European narcissism, oh how nice those primitive people there are discovering the beauty of Western democracy, they want to be like us. It was much more tragic thing. Something happened in Ukraine people coming together, hundreds of thousands, and as a collective agent, enforce a change. Such an act is no longer even thinkable in Europe. You know, we are so constrained to our small personal freedoms. In this sense, I think this fascination with Ukraine was a progressive one, was a fascination with how we can still imagine a great collective uh, historical act. And again, it's not only what I said, Putin, but now, I found that disgusting, but it's not the point, namely that the last uh, Eurovision song, that Conchita Wurz, the bearded lady. But nonetheless, who won? You know that Russians, Putin regime turned this now into an entire cultural war, you know, against Western European decadence and so on. No, it's horrible how Putin is consciously playing... Not just the Russian nationalism, but elevating Russia into a kind of traditional values superpower against this impotent, permissive obscenity of Western Europe, and so on and so on. So no, I have absolutely no sympathy if you mean here with uh, with. Uh, and that's what I said about good bad in Ukraine. No, I just what I just wanted to say is how. T- Europe is usually here very narcissistic, you know, when it's fascinated with a country, it's as a rule for wrong reasons. It projects, like, it's the same thing that I said about Balkan. You know, my friend Mladen Dolar proposed this wonderful formula 20 years ago that uh, European unconsciously structured like Balkan. And that was my thesis why I really think he's dangerous and bad. Why I hate the director... Megastar Balkan, Emir Kusturica. Did you see his film Underground? You know why I think it's wrong? And he's a good filmmaker, I don't doubt that. What image of ex-Yugoslavia do you get from that film? That is permanent orgy. People fuck, shoot each other and drink. This is not Balkan. This is the Western myth of Balkan. So I am not... a. Reproaching Kusturica for being too, no, Balkan, no. He, he plays the role of this Balkan wild man for Western European gaze and he does it consciously. I was, we, uh, he almost attacked me physically at some round tables in France where I noticed how everything is studied. You know, he uses dirty words. I will fuck your mother and so on. He consciously plays this brutal Balkanian fool. You know, in that sense, I only made, it has nothing to do with Ukraine itself. Okay, so let me uh,
1: but let me quote the last uh, sentence of, uh, of a book, which actually... Mm. Uh, My
0: God, you will be a good Stalinist project. You see you how, can go how he, but doesn't, he goes on <laughs>
1: uh, It's the best compliment I can get for you, I think. Um, um okay but like your the last sentence of your book um which is pretty similar to uh the, the way how you uh formulated the ending of your of your lecture um is like like the like, like let me quote uh we should fully accept this openness, guiding ourselves on nothing more than ambiguous signs from the future. Yeah. However, the book is extremely interesting. Uh, inside Um, doesn't it
0: isn't it like a theoretical capitulation no I think if you ask me that uh, okay this is part now we would have to talk seriously part of a much more complex line of argumentation you know in between I did a totally crazy thing I published a book less than nothing which certainly doesn't weigh less than nothing, because it's over 1,000 pages, where I try to develop why we should return from Marx back to Hegel historically. What I meant by this, Signs from the Future Open, is that what we usually refer to as Marxist theology, teleology, sorry, in the sense that no matter how you want to save Marx. Something remains. Marx thought that he formulated an insight into where at least potentially history is moving, like the whole dynamic of capitalism points towards a uh, possibility of communist revolution. And then that you can have a historical agent, working class communist party, which acts as an agent of this historical necessity or more relativistically uh, objective possibility, whatever. I think we should drop this. That was my point about fate. The only teleology that we have is a negative one. We are approaching catastrophe. And then there are mysterious here and there signs about alternate possibilities, alternatives, but... I don't don't think that we can risk today, uh, for precise hegelian reasons, a positive vision of what the alternative should be. I'm not ready to do that. I think we should be here hegelians. Hegel was here much more materialist than Marx. You know, Hegel... For Hegel, the idea that, oh, we see where history is moving and we can jump on the train and uh, help pushing it in that direction, that would be too crazy for Hegel. Hegel says, you know, my, not exactly friend, we have polemics, but he's not stupid. The great American uh, Hegelian Robert Pippi He drew, you know, usually people take as Hegel's political manifesto his philosophy of right, his vision of a state there as a concrete state, three estates, kind of a rational, bureaucratic state. But Pippin said something very nice. He said that, you know, Hegel, these are his most famous lines in his philosophy of right, where he says that, you know, the famous quote, that the all of Minerva takes off in the evening. That is to say, whenever philosophy or social theory describes a certain sociopolitical structure, that is to say, when it is possible to describe theoretically, in a rational scientific way, a certain sociopolitical structure, it means that this structure, this social order, is already approaching its end. As Hegel put it, uh, Philosophy can only paint gray on gray. It cannot give vision of the future. And Pippin makes a simple remark. Isn't it that then Hegel was not a complete idiot? He must have known that the same should uh, hold also for his own philosophy of right. He is describing a certain vision there of rational society whose time has already passed. And I, I here I'm ready to go to the end. I'm not saying we should become short-term pragmatists. And it's not... Okay, now I will counter it to you. Where do you see any vision today? Listen, 20th century is over. Communist, Stalinist vision, forget about it. It's clear that social democratic welfare state vision also doesn't function. And the last obstacle that we should drop, I think, is this... Oh, I hated this you know uh, how do they call it? this uh, you know all this negri stuff of you know local democracy against representation, multitude people in councils, locally blah blah, all that stuff first, I must tell you something extremely brutal. what a nightmare such a society would be. I live in a small town and I have to go to some stupid meeting, how we distribute water, where we do this that, no, I want to live in a Nicely alienated society, where I don't have to know too many people, where I can sit at home and watch my watch my films and read my books and write them. You know, I, again, I follow here uh, uh, Slaughterdyke, who has this nice idea that we should rehabilitate the notion of alienation. Not, of course, in this traditional Marxist sense, but in the sense of, like... I hate those liberals who play this game. Oh, we have a duty to learn other cultures and so on. We are already caught in this superego logic, you know, that of course you never understand the others because you also don't understand yourself. We don't. So I let my ideal society is not where I have to study other people's uh, customs and, uh, I, but, uh, a society where, let's say, I live in a big apartment house, my one of my neighbors is Iranian, the other Latino American, etc., and we politely ignore each other. I would love to live in such a society, not in a society where they would tell me, "Oh, would you like to taste our food?" And then I said no, and I proclaimed the racist or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, 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 we don't have to interpenetrate each other totally and so on. I mean. So again, uh, in this sense, I'm saying all these models of twentieth century, all and I exactly believe in what we quoted. All we have is some wonderful signs from the future, in the sense of elements for you. Talk, like I think in one of my books, I quote that one. It's maybe the most beautiful one. It's an I'm sorry, if some of you know it. An empirical research. From one of the big universities, I quoted, which showed something so paradoxical. They measured the relationship between the quality of your work and how well you are paid. And they come to a wonderful result. When you reach a certain income, not a very high one, just so that you can relatively comfortably survive, not only it doesn't matter how well you are paid, like, if you are paid more, you will do the same work. No, if you are paid much more, even your work will be better. Sorry, will be worse. And first they thought this is some American perversion. Then they repeated the same experiment in an Indian village, in a Chinese village, and so on, and came to this wonderful, almost communist conclusion. You know, in other words, they proved empirically. Wrong. This basic capitalist idea that it's about uh, competition, money. Uh, no, money. Uh, and we already have such communities today where the logic is totally different. Like a friend of mine works in that, how do you pronounce it? CERN, CERN, where they will ruin us all. You know that super colli- You know that some people are afraid that if they really reproduce Big Bang, they will trigger a process and we will all... <laughs> But what I want to say is that they told me it works like this there, you know. They're involved enthusiastically in a communal problem and money, okay, it's nice to have you, but it's not at that level at all. So you see there are some signs some signs from the few. And are you ready to go a step further here? I am not. Give me some Ideas, But aren't all social critics like this today? Let's take an enemy of mine, he attacked me, whom I nonetheless appreciate. Let's take Noam Chomsky. Does he give any, expect some vague anarchism, very vague, does he give any, even minimal idea of what society he wants? No, but it, that's an easy sparring partner.
1: Let, let's not
0: say... Okay, I'm give me
1: sure. a serious one. Okay, I will give you the serious yeah. one, at, or at
0: least... Uh, but not some <laughs> Polish genius from some village close to <laughs> Belarus. Somebody that I know, so that I can answer, yeah. Actually, probably it would be
1: more interesting than what I will ask for, because it's okay. kind of a mandatory question. Yeah. Because
0: I'm going to ask yeah. you about a... Uh, that's going to that be the mandatory question. I hate them... What do I like most about Poland for this time? Actually, you never I... answer these questions.
1: All other questions are pretty predictable, this kind of reference to but you or Roncier or other stuff. You yeah—you uh, you, you were asked a thousand times uh, about it. Yeah. You answer in the same way. So actually asking you, like, who are you or where is Poland or what do you think about it could be probably more, f- even, even more fruitful as yeah, a kind yeah, of yeah, empty yeah. signifiers. Um, but let's... Uh, let's let's ask you in, about uh now now i'm gonna uh, it's not going to be crypto advertisement it's going to be the real advertisement <laughs> i never do the crypto ones um, we're going to publish the book of piketty in may yeah um, and he's maybe proposing something that would be very useful for you because it can create a world nicely alienated uh you know the diagnosis, and you know the proposal the yeah. diagnosis is like let's not follow salaries let's follow yeah. the um, what people owns yeah. and uh and, and actually the the it's uh the, the 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 answer is let's implement the global
0: progressive tax okay yeah what's your comment on it My comment is first, let me express my great admiration for Piketty in the sense that he broke a certain how should I put it common sense, commonly accepted stupidity and like he opened a new space. This is important. We can reason, talk in a new way. But apart from that, now comes my critical point, and I wonder how you will answer to this. Not only I go to Gulag, you also go to Gulag if you don't. <laughs> if the word utopia has any sense at all. It's his proposal. Why? And in a way, he even knows it. Because, okay, universe, first, my problem is this one. Of course, we should do it, and it's a good thing. But in order to do what he proposes, we should already have won. his. The implementation of his measure proposes a worldwide political authority which can implement radical laws globally my God, we already won if we have that. The big point is, you know, how do we come to that point? That's the first utopian moment. The second one is that uh, basically, and I don't blame him for that. There are good reasons to accept that. He accepts that capitalism is the only game in the town in the sense that the system really works. So isn't his dream a little bit this one? Let's have capitalism the way it is, just with much higher taxes. I don't think you can do this. I think we should begin with what he says. But then you will discover in order to do this, you have to do that. You have to do that, and so on, and so on. So in this sense, I'm not against what he proposes. I'm just saying that doing that will, even if you somehow can do it, in some states, I don't know what, would have triggered a process which we don't know where it will lead us. And we are back to my point. This is just one specific measure. It will take us somewhere we don't know where. Here you're not
1: consequent because you were claiming for many years yeah, um, that it's easier to imagine the Star Wars than even the small theoretical mm. correction of the capitalism. And now you get it and now you dislike it. No, 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 no.
0: What I'm saying, again, is that... Uh, Yes, it, you, what you cannot imagine, what is the true utopia, is that the system that he imagines, capitalism as we have it, just with much higher taxes for the rich, that I think you cannot do. it. You cannot do it in the sense that you can begin by it, but you will be immediately forced to do something more, to do that more, to do that more, and so on. So
1: you're a deaf artist, you go to Guag, but if you are in Guag with your jokes, I'm following you,
0: no problem. Uh, we're no, close now I will age. answer aggressively. Piketty proposes a joke for me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what is so interesting? How, and Piketty is not here an exception, how, for example, uh, not Krugman, the other guy, Stieglitz, proposed something almost similar, no? He said It's a nice idea. The problem is not capitalism, the problem is democracy. But it's a same utopia that with a more authentically democratic system where political parties would not be controlled by all those secret uh, funding rich people, we could simply change the laws, uh, higher taxes, and I don't think it works as simply as that. I'm always... From uh, That's my lesson from my communist youth in the sense of living under communism. I always mistrust simple solutions. But again, not in the sense that they don't work, but in the sense, again, that they always trigger a process which will lead us who knows where. That's my first dogma. My other dogma is we will more and more need and we can now play this Marxist game. We can call it uh, state or some kind of uh, what today's state is doing. Strong regulatory, even global mechanisms with strong executive power and so on and so on. I am for authority,
1: if you ask me. All right. Now
0: you ask Slavoj Žižek,
1: uh, but let me first uh, check how many hands we have. So hands up.
0: One, two... Huh? I noticed you, revisionism, you count only on the right side. They were prepared, no. Prepare the, no. <laughs> I noticed it. <this>. You <laughs> brutally ignored the left. My brother from Israel,
1: you want to ask a question? Okay, so we have three, then four. How many can you take?
0: Uh, just, I really, I promise, try to give short answers, but he's getting old and senile. Can I answer one by one, fast? Of I'm course, not good of at course. This. Come on, and I've, I promise. Everybody, everybody
1: wants to have your answer on his or her own. So, um, so the fifth one we need, and we're gonna. Uh, is there any fifth question? Ah, finally, radical left. I hope you. <laughs> um. Okay, so uh, Agatha was first.
2: Thank you. I- I totally enjoy you. The last
0: time I met you was in Chicago, I think, no?
2: I think it was in Chicago, yes. That's true. (laughs) Well, um, I totally enjoy everything you said.
0: But Uh, when you start, you are uh, what they call a immediately loving way. Of course, you you immediately know what I'm going to say. When you start like this, I already see how you are sharpening the knife there.
2: (laughs) I can can show my hands. No no knife there. Because uh, you're a sovereign exception in the world of... Today's oh. left. You are, because you can say all the things that you said right now about the necessity of uh, defending the European Enlightenment, the West as a light culture uh, for the world, the sort of old-school emancipatory values, defense of universalism against the postmodern flexible identities and so on. Yes. And you can get away with it and still yeah, remain more a and leftist. More, but and it's still? more and
0: more difficult.
2: Okay. I'm, I'm more and more denounced. it. it. I'm
0: Fascist heading and, towards it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So
2: if I say, said this, and actually I'm doing it all the time to my students, and especially about this yes. negative stuff, I totally enjoyed what you said about them. They immediately dubbed me a neocon. Oh, you're just telling me the sort of the all old, old and head neoconservative Conser- neoconservative So something, my so yeah, my sorry, question sorry. my question is, because you know, I'm not a sovereign exception in the world of the left. I'm probably closer to the liberal center. I'm not ashamed of it. But
0: no problem. My... When we take power, it's not gulag, but yeah. re-education I know, camp. I know. I know. <laughs> it will be beautiful for two years. You, know, you will get up at five.
2: No, I end up. I I'll end up in a purgatory. Purgatory, yes. who is, and <laughs> i end up in the a... central
0: committee. Will decide who is weak. <laughs> Certainly not you. No, 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 no. Just... Because we is not the one who asks this question. Sorry, let's go.
2: <laughs> no, just like in a rapture, I will end up in eternal purgatory because I will never say I love but maybe this is
0: the true. But maybe this is the true paradise. You know, all these jokes that probably uh, heaven is the most boring place where... Yeah,
2: sure. But no, my question, thanks <laughs> I mean, yeah. to the question, is where is the difference? Where is, where is the difference between what you say about and? the necessity of, necessity of the defendment of Western culture, yeah, yeah. white culture, and so on, and what basically the liberal center of the New accounts are saying?
0: Okay, I can give you a short, precise yes, answer. Just, just
2: that's what I want. With
0: all my terrible skepsis about 20th century solutions, and the reason I still am some kind of a Marxist, I think, to put it very simply, that there are a series of systemic antagonisms in today's world, uh, from uh, biogenetics, the reason why Fukuyama is no longer a Fukuyamaist, to, uh, to ecology, to financial capital intellectual property, to new forms of apartheid and so on. I don't see how in the long term liberal democratic capitalism will be able to Not to resolve them, maybe they cannot be resolved, but even to deal with these problems. And I don't know what, but I think some force, which is not the market force or whatever, will have to enter the game. How to do it, I don't know, but we are, you know, but when people say, oh, you are crazy, my answer is, my God, I trust Hollywood. Look, look. The latest Hollywood blockbusters, they know about class struggle, what once was called. Look at uh, Hunger Games, uh, Elysium and so on. Hollywood is obsessed with this, maybe right inside that. If we allow things to go on the way they do, we are approaching a new apartheid society and so on. So I'm like communist by default, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, not, I'm not having a big vision what it will be. I'm just saying negatively. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. With, pl- and with pleasure, if I may put it like this. Yes. But what you said about conservatism. Ah, Mark somewhere. No, but before it was like you sound like a neocon. Uh, 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 Mark somewhere said something very beautiful. He said that there is a legacy authentic in conservative values But only a true radical revolutionary can redeem them. That would be my motto. Very nice one. You find this in Benjamin, in Marx, in all true. This is why authentic leftists is never a simple progressist. You know, we are just uh, moving, whatever. Okay, the second one.
3: Uh, I I want to ask you, because the first time I hear Slavoj Žižek making some positive statements, like, uh, for example... Um, convincing people to be self-entrepreneurs and. Uh, but wait a minute! Like I this.
0: criticize that. I think it's. Why do you think a positive statement? I'm horrified okay. by that. I uh, think that mm-hmm. it's the best ideological invention that you can imagine. It proposes you the very form of actual slavery as the form of your freedom. But sorry to interrupt you. Go on.
3: Okay, that, that changes the point a little bit because. Uh, I mean, the the effect of uh, of speech can be can be different. It doesn't it doesn't matter. You are a very ironic philosopher, so uh, you use irony often. So I think that uh, it's sometimes hard to recognize what the statements really are. So maybe I'm wrong, but you, I had this impression that you made some uh, positive statements here. Uh, so at this point was, uh, for example, the American. A role in the modern, uh, in, in this current situation of being a policeman. This one was a uh, sort of like a positive statement towards uh, American p- uh, politics, uh, and uh, the other one was uh, probably no. Agata was asking about this uh, difference between being neoconservative uh, in the sense that that the the machine of uh, of criticism can produce an effect that uh, is, can uh destroy so, uh, any any kind of um uh practices uh i mean except of uh, discursive practice That's my, my question is that uh because you're a writer and so you're um and you're a critical writer mm-hmm. uh what do you see other uh, other <coughs> positive uh practices uh what are they also on discursive level but also on the practical level uh do, as a communica- uh, maybe in communication. Yeah, yeah. In okay, very
0: briefly. Uh, f- okay, again, you asked me a difficult question to answer it properly. It would be half an hour. But let me just say something that this is so strange because always people claim I don't know what I... No, I consider myself basically... A very naive philosopher, and it's not true that I'm just making fun ironically. My God, I wrote a one thousand pages book on Hegel, where I systematically describe how, what is dialectical analysis, and so on and so on. Uh, so uh, I think that, on the contrary, today's system is already ironic. The whole pro, like I put it in this way, just to give a very short answer. You know, I published without meeting. Any of them, that stupid book, Comradely Greetings, me and the Pussy Riot Czech symbol that Nadezhda Tolokonikova, no? And it was interesting because it was just a commercial endeavor. There was a genuine conflict there between the two of us. Her idea was that, and for me, this is a nightmare. I, her idea is that we have a system, stability, rules, and then we have these crazy moments of explosion, holy fool, uh, you know, uh, 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 freedom, liberation. And uh, I told her that she, she is not she is not respectful enough towards their own practice. For example, what they did in that stupid Moscow church, that dance uh, I don't read it like this. We have there the official power caught in its rituals and then through our ironic staging we subverted it. No, the message should be the true brutal ironies who mocks us all is Putin regime itself. So it's totally wrong to see the opposition as, you know, we are the fresh wind of madness, carnival against uh stable bureaucratic structures. We don't need carnival. We need better bureaucratic structures, my, my God, you know. At that point, Putin should be beaten. Because I hate this typical right-wing celebration of revolution where they say, okay, things get boring once every 20 years. You need a little bit of comedy, revolution, blah, blah. And then what? Then uh, the day after, things return to normal, no? I'm Here, even uh, brutally realist, Uh, I think it's easy to do these cheap big events. You know, you see 100,000 people on Tahrir Square, we all cry, oh my God, what a great thing. Fuck it. What interests me is how the difference is felt the day after. When the enthusiasm is over, are there any actual changes? If we don't find the solution here, then there will be always the same formula repeated as in Egypt. You have a minority which does its carnival, freedom, blah, blah, and then you have a free vote. I mean, are we aware what a terrible lesson Egypt was? They wanted democracy, they got it, and they democratically got the Muslim brothers, and at the end, the majority of the protesters supported the military coup d'etat. You see, uh, that's another pessimist conclusion that I'm ready to take, you know? Even the most popular radical movement, let's be brutally clear, they are never really the majority. If you take all revolutions, from October, Paris, Commune, French Revolution, later, don't you think that it's maximum, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, 20% people. The majority is witnessing, maybe in a sympathetic way, and so on and so on. So from here now comes the real horror. I'm almost tempted, but of course not in the totalitarian way, to rehabilitate this Leninist notion of active avant-garde. But of course not in the sense of we rule you, we know better than you. But in the sense of, and I respect here ordinary people, I don't mean the majority is too stupid, Like, like I got in conflict with my good friend, American Marxist, Frederick Jameson, when he told me how he despises those Cubans who emigrate to the United States, betraying their country. But I told him, it's easy for you to say this, you're a top-paid American professor, you know. Imagine an ordinary Cuban, because I spoke with some Cuban, Cuban have dissidents, and they told me, you know, they can somehow survive, but... What is so horrible for ordinary Cubans, especially intellectuals, is that they experience the situation as how many things are happening in the world, digital revolution, and we are left out of it. We missed it, you know. So I don't think we intellectuals have the right, you know, to play this arrogant role from our comfortable position like, I will not name her, but a big feminist figure of sexual identity theories, again recently attacked me, and the line of association was this one, you Lacanians, name of the father, you are the official patriarchal theory, while we are the voice of those who are not allowed to speak, marginal voices, well, this person has recently got a job for which I would be ready to sell my mother into slavery, you know. $350,000 per year with obligation only one course to teach per year, one semester, five room apartment on Riverside Drive and so on, assistant and so on. Some a little bit sick and tired of these academics who claim to be, you know, Radically subversive, but in this, as you said, shitty discursive way, you know, like we are the voice of those whose voice should not be heard and so on and so on. Here I am effectively an iconoclast and this may amuse you. Uh, recently, last summer, I did something that I never thought it will be possible for me to do it. I took three months, sorry, three weeks and I rewrote Antigone. And it works very well. It is already accepted by Croat National Theater. They will get Astor, the big German director. And uh, then there are already offers from, my God, maybe I will even earn some money. from. But you know what? I did it, no? I did it in a Brechtian way. Maybe you know the story, no? It's, I really rewrote it all with many uh, ironic historical references. The idea is this one. You know, my God, fuck, it, you should know, it's your director. You know, Kislovsky's is my favorite film. How do you pronounce it? Uh, blind yeah, chance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, blind, okay, to speak civilized language, blind chance. Yes, that we <laughs> all understand. Uh, you know, this idea that at the crucial point, it can go into a different direction. No? And I rewrote Antigone like that. The crucial point is, of course, the big dialogue uh, of Creon and Antigone. Eh? First, we have. The version, the official one, no? Like, Creon wins, wins, okay, brutally, imposes his will, she is, you know the version. Then, in my second version, Antigone wins, in the sense that she convinces Creon, my God, you know, and this unwritten loss from eternity, blah, blah, and Creon says, my God, maybe you are right, so let's... And you know what happens? You can imagine. Catastrophe. Creon was right. Pragmatically, people cannot tolerate that a traitor to the city get proper burial. At the end, all Thebes, the city, is in flame, totally ruined. And in the last scene of this part, last uh, moment, Antigone walks totally desperate. Everything is in under, in fire, burning. And she quotes her big hit line, you know, But I was created for love, not for war. And then Chorus strikes back, you know, and says, uh, like, basically, fuck you, bitch. That's what you achieved with your stupid act. Then you get the third version, which is my favorite one, of course. While Antigone and Creon are fighting, the Chorus steps in, arrests both, and says... While the people are suffering, you know, the Jacobin line, Antigone, uh, chorus becomes a kind of a comité de salut public, you know. Like, you with your feudal uh, conflicts are ruining people, you will all both be liquidated. Then each of them tries to defend, him or herself. Like, with Antigone's defense, I quote that famous Brecht uh, poem. I paraphrase it, you know where Antigone says, but I always kept my word. And I never looked at my interests. Korus says, okay, so which interests you were looking, taking care of? She said, I always keep my word. The Korus said, okay, but whom did you give the word? So at the end, Korus said, okay, you are our enemy, but we see that you are an honest, good person. So we will kill you with a good sword and bury you in a good earth and so on. And then at the end, this is... Of course, my favorite version. My God, there has to be some order and so on, you know. And it works, and it's meant in a totally non-ironic, authentically Brechtian way. You have three options. You have pragmatism, crayon. I always felt that crayon didn't get a proper chance. If you cut the bullshit, Creon has... Crayon's decision can be defended... Pragmatically, you know, like he basically knows that if you give way to Antigua, it can mean the whole city will be will be in ruins, and so on so but back to your point, so you see this is the crucial point of me. I know people often take me oh I'm the clown, blah blah blah, but if people get my lesson, my message is no, those whom you take seriously, they are the true clowns, you know that that oh. I wonder if it works or not. Maybe it works a little bit. You know what's the sign? Two good signs. A, that I'm often attacked from both sides. Like I'm proud of my book, Welcome to the Desert of the Real, which was translated, my only book, into Arab, and in Cairo, and in into Hebrew in Tel Aviv, and I loved it. Jerusalem Post accused me of the most... Uh, of uh, uh, the most perfidious uh, uh, anti-Semitism, Al-Ahram accused me of the most refined, disgusting Zionist propaganda. Now, if both sides attack me like that, maybe I'm moving in the right direction. But I will stop now. Before
1: the third question, let me a bit redirect it, because... um, uh, I the the people who are standing, maybe you should get the occasion to ask. Finally,
0: a you noticed the working class. I
1: was. <laughs> I was. No, but afraid. I. But, okay. But eventually, I did it. So, is there any question? Then we can make an excuse. Okay. Um. Is there any?
0: Of course. Okay. If not, then honor. Uh, now I will be a new ager and tell you. You know, a new ager would ask you. I hate this new age gone Don't how their silence tells more than all the words, you know, this New Age
4: bullshit. Okay, let's go on. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you very much. My my question is going to somewhat repeat the, the first question that you were asked. Yeah. And you you said something to the extent that Marx, you paraphrased Marx saying that it takes a real revolutionary to understand the truth that is hidden conservatism or something to, yeah. to that extent, right? Yeah. And I th- I think it gives me a sort of a link to ask you about a thinker with whom mm. normally you're not associated with and the reason I'm going to ask Just, you I hope about, it's not Schopenhauer. No it's Foucault actually and the reason mm. that I uh, I want to ask you about Foucault is because recently there is a lot of uh, sort of backlash in the literature I don't know if you read in Jacobine or Zamora's book in, in in France about the question whether Foucault was or was not a neo liberal based on his lectures on biopolitics that he gave in the Coalition recul- mm. Fund, 78, 79. Mm. And it seems to me that it relates quite a bit to the question that you were you were just asked. Mm. What if perhaps the reason why you're not dubbed as is a, is, is a neocon at the end of the day is because there is a certain link that you you hold fast to Marxism, even though the content of it is not necessarily quite clear. What if the future of the left rests in a reinvention of maybe the neoliberal position as Foucault was reading it at the time. And so I, was, I wanted to ask you about that. What is your relation to, to, towards, first of all, Foucault's reading of neoliberalism, perhaps the way out of this situation is actually working from it instead of resulting to what he would say is a, a philosophy more and more adapted to the 19th century, rather to the 21st century. Uh- Okay, now, this is, again, obviously
0: a way too complex question, but what I would have said is that uh, the Foucault I'm definitely not ready to follow is the last Foucault, uh, printed, not lectures, not seminars. You know, all that stuff about the care of the self and all that. I don't see any emancipatory potentially. And this is, for me, problem with... Many today's theoreticians who are generally perceived as subversive or whatever, for example, and I have personally good relations with her, Judith Butler, the problem for me with her is that what she describes as this subversive model, you know, no rule of law, no fixed identities, we constantly performatively undermine our identities, shifting, experimenting with ourselves, my reaction to this was, so what? That what she is describing is not a sub, something subversive threat to today's order. She is simply describing the implicit ideology of today's developed world. That is to say, I claim that uh, apart from some neocons, but who are already a reaction to this, the predominant ideology today in the United States, at least in the educated academics, it's precisely that. It's no longer that patriarchal stuff, obey, sacrifice yourself. It's something like, live authentically, experiment with yourself, be creative. You know, something along those lines of what I call enlightened hedonism. You know. And this, here I have a a, a problem with Foucault, but if We don't have time now to go in detail in Foucault, you know, which is for me uh, his absolutely the best book, but one of the least popular ones. My God, at this moment, how is that methodological book called? Methodology of knowledge. Yes, yes, yes. That's for me his best book because he does something wonderful there. The topic of the book are not systems but statements as events. It's, really a, it's a very Deleuzean book, if you want. But when people claim that Foucault and Deleuze are together, what they forget is that uh, at the end they split politically also and so on. So again, uh, there are many things to be learned from Foucault. But I think, uh, first, when you said neoliberalism, again, the big problem for me is what neoliberalism are you talking about? I don't think that any state is effectively practising Leo Rivere. United States, are you kidding? All this conservative isn't this the basic fact? From Reagan onwards, we had all those presidents who were elected uh, uh, criticising Washington bureaucracy and so on. They ended up even strengthening the state and so on. I claim that the role of state mechanisms today is stronger than ever. No economy can function today without, okay, we have neoliberalism with uh, healthcare care and so on, all those. But if you look overall at the role of state mechanisms, they are stronger than ever. No wonder that the most successful states today, like Singapore, whatever, China, South Korea, yes, they have a market, blah, blah. But they have an extremely strong state which regulates, collaborates with the market and so on and so on. So uh, that's, uh, uh, I have again, I, the second thing is that I see, but we don't have my good time to go into it now. My problem with Foucault is the following one. He, and he admitted this, with surveiller et punir, which is. Uh, Discipline and sorry?
4: Discipline and punishment.
0: Yeah. He approached a certain closed model, like every resistance is part of, no? And uh, this, I see the deadlock, basically no resistance. And then to get out of this deadlock, he turned into this pre-Christian practices, whatever. I don't uh, don't buy that. I think that simply he misses the point of psychoanalysis, to put it like this. But it's another very complicated debate and so on you know no again but back to neoliberalism what do we mean by neoliberalism because it has so many inconsistent uh, inconsistent features like in the united states you know it's typical you have neoliberalism and you have what they call liberals and as you know they are usually totally opposite no and i think this inconsistency is necessary you cannot say but this is real liberalism and so on
4: Uh, So, uh, again... uh, Well, I was referring to the older liberals, Hayek, Gary Becker, Milton Friedman... Hayek is not a total idiot,
0: I agree. I even quote him positively. You know what I like in Hayek? It's a big lesson to Marxists. How, I quote him here, how, in a what nice way Hayek answers... I'm on Hayek against John Rawls. The true idiot is for me John Rawls. Because my friend whom I quoted, Dupuy, makes this argument against Rawls' theory of justice. That uh, theory of justice, this model of, you know, you're allowed to get rich if those lowest on the ladder also profit and so on. It works only if you exclude envy. The moment you have envy, it doesn't work. Why not? Hayek has a wonderful argumentation answering the reproach that, but capitalism is not just. Market is irrational, like, uh, you are lazy, I work like crazy, but because of some market fluctuations, you become rich, I lose. And Hayek says, but that's why capitalism works. His idea is, imagine a just capitalist society, where you are rich because you are effectively better than me. And we would have exploded. You know what allows us to survive in capitalism? Let's say I become rich, you not, and you can still claim, yes, it's market luck, I'm an idiot, I was just lucky. I claim, and here I take the lesson of psychoanalysis that, and even Rousseau knew this when he distinguished amour de soi and amour proper that, you know, envy is the big problem, which is connected with all this Lacanian like, topic desire, desire of the other. You know, when I want something, I Who said this? The writer, Gor Vidal, in capitalism, it's not important that I win. Even more important that the other guy loses, you know, like you are. I mean, I don't know how you are, but as a Slovene, I find myself justified talking about this because, you know, we Slovenes are a nation like that. I don't know if you have it again. You know, we have like this famous saying, you know, uh, 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 a fairy or a, some ma- magician uh, appears to a Slovene uh, farmer and tells him I will uh, what do you prefer? That I give you a cow but I give to your neighbors two cows and I take one cow from, from you but I take two cows from your neighbor. Every Slovene would have chosen the second option. Okay. Or even worse God comes or, uh, to a Slovene farmer and tells him I will do something to you, whatever you want, but I will do it twice more to your neighbor. You know what the Slovene farmer says? Take one of my (laughs) eyes. We'll take both. But this is the fundamental. And uh, again, Rolls doesn't work here. And Dupuy told me he had a shouting match debate with Rolls, and Rolls simply couldn't accept it, just denied. No, envy is not such a problem, and so on, and so on, and so on, you know. Sorry, because I promised to
1: you uh, personally that I don't, that we will not kill you. So uh, let me uh, keep it short. Like, let me take one more question, one more short answer,
0: and we're going to take you there. I'm sorry, I cannot take anymore. Okay? This is friendship, you know. I love him because, like, I also want to get rid of you but I want to be allowed this hypocrisy that I will be able to tell you then, this, I would like to stay here all the night, but this bad guy, you know, like this is what friends are for. If I'm- so, exactly. I'm sorry. This is the last question.
5: In one, of your, um, in one of the interviews with you, I read that you don't like giving lectures because of people asking stupid questions. Well, I hope that won't be one of them. But um, just a moment ago, you stated that... Um, you are for authority, if somebody asks you. Um, and you said that you're against Negri's idea of very localized policies and um, mm-hmm. uh, acting ve- very local, those small communities. But um, in uh, your book, First as Strategy, Then Sorry, which book? First of Strategy, oh, yeah, Then as farce. Shorty, yeah, Farce.
3: Yes.
5: Yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned that you are the t- true communism... Must come together with the abolishment of the state. My question is if not the state and if not small local communities, what will we, do we give um, instead of it? Uh, that's a good question, but first I would like to have the precise place
0: where I really say this, because I mean, this is my eternal ongoing conflict with Alain Badiou, who claims that. Like, state is bad, and all authentic politics is outside state. For me, this is what Hegel would have called beautiful soul. You know, like a comfortable outside position. No, I like, that's why, in spite of all the horrors he did, that's what I, in the book that you translated, my first uh, uh, revolution at the gates, or not? that's what I admire in Latin. Okay, he did horrible things, but he wasn't a bullshitter. You know, he saw a chance to take... And I claim that's the tragedy of most of the postmodern left. They even don't want power. They're just playing games. They want their... George Orwell, I quote him, he had a, a wonderful, already in the late 30s, vicious attack on radical left. And he writes that they talk all the time about necessity of a radical change and revolution but it's part of a superstitious logic that if we all the time talk about it, maybe it will not happen, you know, like just make it sure that this is why isn't the big, like isn't it said that the biggest triumphs of leftist theory is whenever you have a revolutionary fiasco, there will always be an excellent Marxist book on why it had to fail and so on, you know, they were always like Trotsky, revolution and so on and so on but what you uh, uh, but briefly but what you said about this i hate and so on my god there you know we really live in uh, crazy times that was obviously i like maybe their bad taste here i am ironic often not in pure theory but when I made these remarks, I know what I said there in that interview. I said basically that I like universities if they are without students, the students uh, annoy you. But, you know, I'm just it. how you can, maybe you are better here, because you, Poles, you have this sense of nice intellectual irony. Like, didn't your, who was it, Christoph Zanussi, do a... Document? He has a lot of it. Sorry? He's full of... I know, but what I like is a title. Didn't you a book about graffiti writings which has this title? Isn't this your proverb, as it were? What is life? A mortal disease, a disease which always ends by death and is transmitted by sex. You know, that spirit I like, but just to give you an idea of stupidity today. Recently, at an American talk, and I thought, I need not explain it. Everyone would know that I'm kidding. I was referring to, you know, one of the best known statements on of Samuel Beckett. After you fail, no? Go on, try again, fail again, fail better. Okay. As a pure bad taste joke, I claim that I read a new biography of Beckett, where it is proven that. When he was young and unemployed, in his 30s, he worked as a social psychologist, specialized in sexual distress of young people, and that this was originally his advice to a young guy who failed in performing the sexual act. That he told him, try again, fail, but fail better, and so on. I thought it's an obvious bad taste, okay, maybe a bad joke, irony. No, somebody attacked me. You didn't verify it. You are lying. Beckett didn't say that and so on. In what society are we living? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, uh, that's okay, but let's drop that. Let's go to that authority. Listen, here I'm serious. In what sense? And I took in my new book, Trouble in Paradise, as an example, precisely, is this his name? You know, that last Auschwitz survivor who died a couple of years ago, Edelman, uh, no,
1: Marek Edelman. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. He's one of my heroes because I knew people who even knew him. I read his biography and so on, uh, uh, texts on him. You know, he was a miracle. He was a Bundist when he was young. He was in ghetto uprising, Warsaw uprising. He was with solidarity and then, that's why he was totally excluded in Israel. He was a letter of support to Palestinians, clearly saying them, no bombing, you shouldn't do this, but I see your struggle. And friend Udi Aloni, who told me his mother, Shulamit Aloni, was in the Rabin government, minister of education, and she visited with him Poland. Uh, with uh, Rabin when he was prime minister, and he told me when Rabin saw Edelman, he didn't want to shake his hand. like. Ooh. And then she told me that she put pressure on him, telling him, no, many Poles are anti-Semites. Are you crazy? Probably half of the government there is anti-Semitic, and he refused to shake the hand to the only authentic Jew. But you see, the person like that is for me a true master. I tried to develop this in that sense. Master, for me, is not the one who gives orders. But didn't you experience this with a good teacher or whatever? Sometimes you encounter persons which simply made you aware of your own potentials or freedoms. They don't tell you, do this, do that. But they make you aware, my God, but I can do that. That's the function of an authentic master, I think. That somehow he restores your freedom to you. He opens up a possibility where you don't see it. And for reasons which are theoretical one, I will not go into them, psychoanalytic one, I think in this sense only we need a master. Not, I'm not buying that old conservative sheep, you know, man is a wild animal, needs a master to control. No, we need, the paradox is that we need a master to become actually free. You know, too. like a master's message today would be you even find some of this in originally in Obama. That yes, we can. That's the message of the master, to put it very simply. Only in this sense, I am only in this sense, I am for the figure of a master. Thank you, master. Uh, Where are we? What hour
4: is it now? Where are we? What hour is it now?
5: You've got my room.
4: Okay.
0: Everything.